This is the current federal tax developments for February the 12th, 2024. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. At Zollers, and this we've got a number of things to talk about during the tax update. First, we'll quickly discuss the fact that there's been no movement on the tax bills this week. Nor does it seem likely that final action at all will take place before March. So we'll talk a little bit about why that is, what our issues are, and you know what the likely outcomes may be, kind of see how that goes. We're also going to find out this week that we had published in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes were first an article in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal that suggested e-filing was a bad idea, and then followed up with that by what was effectively a rebuttal piece that was published in Forbes uh, that suggested why e-filing makes sense. So we'll take a look at those two articles because I know more than a few CPAs I talked to had clients that read the Wall Street Journal article and were calling and asking about those things. Let's have a little discussion about what that does and how it works. We're also going to have a look at a case today where a taxpayer discovers that even though the government took his IRA because he forfeited his IRA because, well, you know, he was doing some, let's say he was a pharmacist that, that was doing extracurricular selling, I guess the way it appears to be, uh, of the stuff he would sell regularly. So, you know, not properly dealing with controlled substances, I think technically what we're looking at here. In any event, they took his IRA, but he discovered regardless, he has to pay tax on that IRA. So we'll talk about why that is and how that works. We're also going to look at the IRS discussing something I think is important. We're in the middle of the ERC, Employee Retention Credit Voluntary Disclosure Program. And the IRS in a, what was basically a webcast last week, specifically pointed out that there are cases where you might want to go to a different disclosure program rather than using the ERC Voluntary Disclosure Program. And we'll talk about that. It's something that we highlighted back when we first discussed the voluntary disclosure program, uh, but they're fairly explicit now. So I, I would certainly pay attention there. The IRS also warned tax professionals about EFIN scam emails. There have been a bunch of them this week. I've heard of a bunch of different CPAs have reported to me that they have gotten these scam emails looking for uh, trying to get the EFIN numbers uh, related to the. Uh, firm in question. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to find a taxpayer was found to have submitted a new late refund claim rather than a revision to a timely filed informal refund claim. And we're not talking about small dollar amounts involved here, the fact that this claim was late. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah, that, that's a kind of interesting case. And it looks at the question about what do you have to do to preserve your rights? And more importantly, to briefly discuss why this particular situation fell apart or not being able to use, even though the court pretty much conceded they had a valid informal refund claim initially. But yeah, th things went off the rails uh, when they did a follow-up to attempt, when they did a follow-up that they at least thought perfected their refund claim and uh, we'll discuss why the court saw that as a problem. Well, as known, we've got no real movement on the tax bills. I'm going to reference you to an article that is in, if you've got access to Tax Notes Today Federal, written by Doug Sward and Katie Stanton, titled Senate Border Traffic Jam Pushes back Tax Bill Back Weeks at Least. 
and this was published on February the 7th. Now, as we're aware, that overwhelming 357 to 70 vote in favor of the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act in the House did not produce a rush to act on the bill in the Senate. Some people thought that if we got an overwhelming vote in the House and, you know, not much passes the House by 357 to 70, that that would put pressure on the Senate to act quickly so that these retroactive provisions would be in place rather than having to delay this until much later in tax season and essentially either force people to extend returns or put up with filing amended returns, neither one of which our clients terribly happy about. Discover that fairly quickly. So we end up going down that path. The problem is the U.S. Senate will be on recess beginning next Monday, or beginning here on the 12th, actually that should be the date, that's the date of this broadcast, and all the way out to the 23rd. So essentially, and they got a few things to do when they get back in town, uh, you know, including dealing with the border tra- the border bill that was there, whatever's happening there now with the bill they passed with, you know, aid to the Ukraine and Israel. They've got the government shutdown situations coming up March 1st, March 8th. Um, they got a lot of things happening. So what we're looking at now is as a practical matter is probably not going to see much action until March. Also, the House did not vote this week on the state and local tax relief bill. So the salt cap bill, it's delayed. We may have a vote on it in the House this week. But again, with the Senate not in town, it doesn't really matter. It would be delayed until also March. And so we're going to see a lot of things there. So remember, the key potential changes that could force you to amend a return, the child tax credit, remember that was already said, the bill basically says IRS recalculate that and send people refunds. That one's kind of automated, so those could still move forward. But all the other ones, really, there's no way to automate them easily. The 174, you know, being able to expense research and experimental expenditures, that would come under 174 cap A. That's, there's no real quick way there, especially since which years you apply it to are elective. And then there is the 163J uh, depreciation, or I should say interest limitation bill, right? We have the bonus depreciation, right? Which is, you know, that, that needs to be refigured and we'd have to work that up. The 179 one is only prospective. So that doesn't hurt us. But the salt cap bill puts every joint return potentially at risk. Um, you know, how that goes forward and how it works. So the problem is we have no good way of handling any of this stuff, and it could be a long time to tax season. Because of that, your clients are going to have to start making some decisions very likely, here because you have to tell them, look, Senate's not here. We don't know what they're going to do. They don't even know what they're going to do in terms of are they going to try to amend the bill? If they amend the bill, then it would have to go back to the House. So it would have to at least either the House has to just accept the Senate amendments, which seems unlikely because if the Senate got to change it, you know, they got through the House by saying you can't change this thing or it's all going to fall apart. But if the Senate changes it, then I'm sure there are people in the House now that's going to want to change it as well. And then we got to get to the conference committee and all those sorts of funds to get things through the, through the Congress. So we could be looking at something very, very close to April 15th, if not even after April 15th in terms of these fixes in the bills. Okay, let's go about the weeklies, the week's war over electronic filing. And this all started with an article published on February 5th, authored by Jay Starkman, a CPA, 
which was entitled Beware of E-Filing Your Tax Return in the Opinion Section of the Wall Street Journal. Now, I've actually worked with Jay on various things over the years. When I was on the AICPA Tax Division Committees, he was also there. Um, so I've talked with Jay. I know what he, I know how you know. I know his background. He does, you know, he 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 has opinions that are a little bit different than a lot, and uh, it's just one of those odd little things that we got used to. And not that, and nothing Jay says in this article is wrong. However, I'm not going to agree with the ultimate conclusion. I will let you know that ahead of time. And we're also going to cover a what was essentially a reply piece for all practical purposes that was published in Forbes uh, two days later. So we'll get to both. But let's take a look at this, because I have heard from a lot of CPAs that their clients called them about this. They've discussed this issue. So let's talk about the Wall Street Journal article and let's talk about the issues Jay raises. And I will say none of the issues that Jay raises are wrong on their face. The only thing I will say I think is straight wrong in the article is when he tells us that paper filing is safer. And I'll, I will say that mainly because no evidence is offered in the article for that position, unless you're going to limit it to the fact that if you file certified mail, we can prove timely filing. But yeah, I no, no, because if, if you do electronic filing right, you have it too. And to do certified mail right and get proof of filing, you've got to do that right. And we, we, we've had some cases you know, where that doesn't get good on right. I've had clients screw it up and various other things. And the good news is I, I've been around from, you know, when we used to do lots of paper filing, uh, you know, back before the electronic filing even existed, all the way through today's electronic filing. So I've been through a lot of tax seasons under both, under both regimes. So got some background on both. Now, Jay asserts that paper is more secure. And when he begins the article, he brings up uh, two different uh, things, tax layer and a malware attack on Walters Kluwers. Now, the malware attack on Walters Kluwers is about five years ago. It was 2019 when that took place. And tax layers uh, leaking data was, I think, about a decade ago. So it goes way back. Now, for those who forget that, there was a problem with Walters Kluwers access program that was shut it down. Actually, it shut down that plus electronic filing for ProFX customers uh, that took place in 2019. And you know, it was a big thing. If you were on ProFX, it was, you know, if you're on no, ProFX, you just couldn't e-file. If you were on Access, you couldn't do anything because it got shut down. Uh, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, or it's not Wall Street Journal, say, but for Journal of Accounts, you have an article linked if on the pages for the slides that will, you know, get you back there and describe what that program was. The problem I have with Jay citing that is specifically the Walters Kluwers, is that affected every single return potentially that you filed if you were a Walters Kluwers customer, right? Because what they got into was access and malware. Now, Jay suggests that, oh man, e-filing, see your data's at risk. And you know, the, these guys got access to it. Any access they got was to data that was on Walters Kluwers servers, which since it was a hosted system, basically included everything, right? It didn't matter if you're gonna paper file or electronically file, that data was going through their systems all the time. So the problem is, this wasn't uniquely a problem to electronic filing. 
And I'll also point out that none of the issues Jay brings up here at this one with loss of data have anything to do with the IRS systems, right? This is more a problem with Walters Kluwer's security or tax, was it tax slayer? Yeah, security, that goes back 10 years. You can read Jay's article to get the right note, but I thought that was who it was. You know, basically it goes back to that. He also talks about, you know, the leaking of data last year where they were putting those bugs on the page uh, for Facebook and other things that, that would read, that could read data on the page because um, they didn't understand what they were doing. But again, those are all flaws with the companies that were running other auxiliary software. No, none of which did you have to use. None of which did we use last year, you know, in my firm to file the returns. So basically, you know, none of these really is a broad-based e-file thing. It's more of a question of a problem of maybe to a limited extent outsourcing, but then that assumes that people that host their stuff internally don't have problems. And if you remember last week, we talked specifically about a CPA firm that ended up with a problem that opened them up because their internal systems, right? Their internal network, somebody got a phishing email, responded to it, opened everything up, and suddenly client data was available everywhere. So again, and in that case, what, right? Now, while probably most things they had there were electronically filed, the reality was it didn't matter. Paper filed returns, anything, you know, theoretically was open. Come after that. Right? So as I said, the malware issue affected the entire platform. So really paper file turns so better off. He also then goes on to note the next issue. And he's actually talking about a couple of cases that we've talked about here when they came up where the CPAs or EAs neglected, somehow never figured out that the tax return of the taxpayer that they had submitted for electronic filing was not accepted. Or in the most recent case, it wasn't clear, but since it was three straight years, I have to believe that it was just not accepted every year, probably for the same reason, but the firm never noticed that. So that, that kind of crisis of filing. Now, admittedly, that's a problem. And I will admit that there is, you know, the, the, the taxpayer, it seems like there's nothing they can do that they can do there. And that is to some extent true. Now, what's the exposure here? In essence, clients should be insisting, and this is, and we should be making sure we provide to clients the documentation of the acceptance of their returns. That is something you are supposed to provide the clients. It also means that you need good controls to make sure that you actually verify that every return you submit is accepted, or if it's not accepted, you, you know, take sufficient action to deal with it. Again, all of those cases where we've had you know, CPAs or EAs that didn't file the return. I think it was one EA case, a couple of CPA cases that have come in recent years. I agree. Taxpayers cannot get out of failure to file penalties when that happens. And in the case of the three straight years, the problem there became too, that a whole refund they had tried to apply ended up getting lost in the middle of all that, right? They never, they just totally lost the funds because the return was never actually filed because it was never filed, that overpayment from the first year eventually just evaporated. Since that, that return, that overpayment didn't exist once it was finally filed very, very late. 
then it couldn't be applied to future years, requiring a whole mess to take, take care of. So that's the catch. Taxpayers have to get notice of filing. You should be providing that to every one of your clients. That, very simple. That, that's really a problem with CPA. He also talked about a pair of late filing tax court cases, right? People filing their petitions at the tax court. And again, these cases do kind of cross-reference, especially the, San the Sanders case uh, did cross-reference that the result would have been the same with electronic filing of a tax return. But in both of these cases, let let's remember the two cases. In the Nutt case, this was a taxpayer who was submitting his tax court petition on the last day to do so, which is a problem in both cases. They were doing so very, very late into the night. And in the Nutt case, they submitted their petition after 11 p.m. The problem is, now that's before midnight, so you might think it's fine, except as the nut case ruled, in the case of a tax court petition, it needs to be there before midnight at the time at the tax court's office in D.C., which was Eastern time and the nut resided in Alabama, which is on central time. So even though Nutt filed it before midnight, so he filed it before midnight on the last day to file, uh, he got tripped up because it turned out he actually submitted to the tax court, which is where the clock was running after midnight. Because we had to look at Eastern time. In the Sanders case, remember that was a guy that tried to fill out the petition beginning at 10 o'clock at night, on his smartphone, which there is so much wrong there. <laughs> we even get started. And eventually at the last minute, like 15 minutes ago, tried to shift to his computer, eventually he had issues, but finally got it to be submitted to the IRS, but he started uploading it nine seconds after midnight and it arrived, totally got uploaded to the tax court at 11 seconds after midnight. And both petitions, both the Nutt and the Sanders petitions, were dismissed as being untimely filed. Now, you know, that's fine, but, you know, the real problem here is all the procrastination, right? We'll talk about that. You know, that, that's kind of a real problem there. But, you know, if you procrastinate that much, what's the, fi you know, what's the fix? That was the bigger problem. And if you procrastinate filing on paper, you have the same problem. You know, you come up to where the post office closes, if you're still trying to do all these things at the last second and the post office closes, then yeah, you can't paper file anymore. It's not going to get postmarked right at that time. And while, especially prior to e-filing being as big as it is, you know, post offices used to stay open until midnight on the last day for filing. You used to have lines of cars there. I can remember those. I can remember the TV stations all going down and showing the lines of cars at the main post office here in the Phoenix area. And when it moved, they moved to the new location and had the lines of cars. Yeah, but that doesn't exist. It never existed on a random tax court filing date. So yeah, procrastination was a big problem there. And paper filing doesn't really help with procrastination at all. He also raises the specter of the use of IDME and data leakage, which has gotten a lot of controversy. It does definitely, you know, IDME asks for some material that you're a little queasy about giving. But it does. But the issue is here: automat is authentication. Are you really you? Because the worst thing that could happen is to give you access to things like transcripts. Is if somebody other than you 
is believed by the government to be you and gets full access to your transcripts, your social security, and other items, right? All of that stuff in there. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. And the first problem we have with IDME is you don't need an IDME account to electronically file your return. An IDME account to get an electronic transcript, you know, to get your personal account on the IRS, be able to access your social security, but not to e-file a return. You know, very few of my clients have IDME accounts because they get confused about how to do it. And bottom line, they still get their returns e-filed with no trouble. You don't need IDME for that. And the other problem is what Jay says here is, well, look, they got all the sensitive data and who knows, there might be a leak at some point that this data could be leaked or go to, you know, go to unauthorized parties. And while true, uh, be careful about telling a client it that way. Because gang, you're being given that same data. You are a third party. You know, your client gives that data to you to handle their tax returns. And there is no, you know, the guarantee that it won't be leaked can't exist to 100%. And that's true also for your own personal, your firm, your network, your other issues. You know, you can't really guarantee the data will not be leaked. That's just the way it works. So honestly, you know, we're kind of down to a problem. Ultimately, I would say, you know, we, we have a real problem here that, you know, with what we're looking at. Okay. And the big problem I have with Jay's article is merely telling me that there's a problem with A does not mean everything that's not A is better than A, right? You know, there, there may be a problem. You know, there, there is a problem with, you know, oh man, this particular car, you know, oh, it's horrible and, you know, or various odd things. Maybe, you know, it, it has, it tends to wear, wear out its tires too quickly. And so therefore you should never drive that car. And instead you substitute a 1970s Ford Pinto. Remember the car that blew up whenever it got rear-ended. Somehow it seems like having wearing tires is probably a better problem than having your Pinto blow up. And kind of the same thing here. Uh, Jay doesn't really deal with any of the issues when you send the documents via the mail. Remember, those documents going out to the mail have all of the client's data. Similarly, if you're not going to electronically deposit the checks, which I assume he's also not thrilled with, uh, so we're going to have that or not electronic withdrawal, there's going to be checks in there. And everybody has probably seen a number of stories over the past year or so about check washing cases. That is where people take checks out of the mail, take envelopes they believe contain checks, take those out from the mail, and you know just modify them, right? Change the payee, and do it in such a way that the bank it doesn't appear bad to the bank. They go ahead and they cash the check, and now a whole disaster is taking place. There have been cases of mailboxes being broken into, right? All kinds of odd problems there. Jay doesn't consider any of those alternatives and say, well, you know, are there problems for data security when we send things through the mail? The reality is there's a ton of them. There are a ton of problems there. You can mitigate them, but you know what? You can mitigate the electronic ones too. I can solve every problem Jay raised on the electronic side, right? We can mitigate all those problems. They can be properly mitigated. 
Uh, but you know, generally, if your client though just mails a return, nine out of ten of them are going to just—they're not going to walk it in the post office. They're not going to get a, a registered mail, a certified registered mail receipt. They're rather going to just drop it in a mailbox, or more likely, they're going to just end up, you know, like putting it out in their own mailbox for the carrier to pick up. And that's a that's a place that you know loves to be stolen from, is things like that. But even boxes get broken into. So that's happening. But here a few years ago in Phoenix, there was one post office that, yeah, right around the filing season, you know, the mailbox in front of the post office after hours, yeah, it was broken into. And yes, people walked out with a tax, you know, there were definitely tax returns in that box because people had put it in there, right? It was getting close to the filing deadline. So I think he under considers that. I think that's a big issue. The other problem is, especially with the Sanders and Nutt cases, remember, they didn't attempt to file the tax court until they didn't even try to get started until after all the nearby post offices would have already been closed. So their procrastination is what ultimately forced them to have to use electronic methods as opposed to filing their tax court petition, you know, down, you know, in you know, just putting it in the mail, getting certified mail. My guess is the client's going to screw that up. And honestly, clients screwing up, elect, you know, we're talking about certified mail. That's something I've had clients foul up multiple times. Uh, funniest one was the client that uh, didn't want to wait in the line at the post office. So just put the little certified mail document, you know, a little certified receipt on top of it, but never put any postage on it. And guess what? That doesn't work. Without any postage, it doesn't count as being mailed. Right? And you need the receipt stamped by the Postal Service employee, which obviously they didn't have. So it was about as wrong as you could get. So yes, while I understand what he's saying and none of the particulars he mentions are wrong, I'm just saying he's skipping the whole issue of are there similar problems with paper filing and what are those like? So we're going to go forward and talk to an article that was published by Amber Gray Fenner, EA, on the Forbes online site, you know, basically five reasons why you should e-file your tax return on February 7th. Now, Amber, I've encountered online over the years, multiple times, had discussions with Amber. And uh, as you might guess here, I'm gonna be a little more on Amber's side here, but we'll talk about what she did. Now, she ended up doing a lot of, you know, interviews or discussions with other experts when she did this. So kind of interesting background. Um, but her ultimate position, and she starts out, she tells you right up front, is that counter to the Wall Street Journal piece, she says e-filing is the best option. And what I think is important here is, is we're talking about a comparative now. This article will do a comparative. Now, I'm sure Jay would disagree with part of it. I have no doubt of that. Jay, if you're listening, hi. Uh, but I'm sure you disagree with parts of it. But this one does at least go on a comparative. Right. Instead of just having, you know, one assertion that paper is better than electronic, we're done. Uh, this one actually went through some of the pieces and in each area talks about how electronic compares with paper in many of these areas. So first section we talk about is that security and data being taken from online. Both cases, they know these are cases from five to 10 years ago. Um, we don't have more recent cases of this type of. Stealing, 
certainly not not from any of the services that we're personally using. Yes, there was the Facebook and Google bugs on the page, which is more somebody on the web development kit has no idea what they're doing and doesn't understand what those bugs look at on the page. Pretty much everything, right, when they're there. And yeah, Google Analytics, I've known about that when I've worked with various, even working with companies, you know, or I've had to publish things and put things on the web uh, for them. Yeah, they, you know, the, the web people always want the Google Analytics stuff and that stuff there. And yes, it will have other stuff on it. You read on, you read on currentfrontaxdevelopments.com website, not really anything there that you're submitting. So it's not that big a problem, but yeah, it was a problem with these others. But remember, again, we don't need to use, you know, we, we don't need to do that. Certainly that's not on the sites we're using for purposes of electronically filing returns with Thomson Reuters, Walters Kluwers, uh, or into it on the professional site, right? So those security issues were from five to 10 years ago. So things have changed, which is true, right? They're up there. And they also note that paper filed returns have many more access points to physically compromise the document than do the e-filed returns. Now, again, it's flat out illegal to go in and, you know, put malware on Walters Kluwer's servers or to try to drag data from. That's flat out illegal. So I understand that somebody takes something on the mails, that's also illegal, but both of these are federal crimes, right? So if you're willing to violate the law, so we're starting from that standpoint, willing to violate the, violate the law, um, then yeah, clearly the postal has a lot more options, right? Those things are moving through and there's not really somebody glancing at them every second to make sure they're not compromised. It would be easy to compromise that, deliver it to the wrong place, you know, hold it and don't deliver it and then just kind of quietly pocket it if you wanted to and take it with you. Uh, there's lots of places it could happen, right? In the whole paper filing situation, uh, you know, all those things or it gets lost in the mail and then who knows where it's at. Remember a number of years ago, the AICPA sending that hard drive that had confidential member data because the drive broke. They were going to send it to a place to retrieve data from the drive and FedEx lost it. And gang, at that point, that data could be anywhere. Now, it was on a dead hard drive, but that drive could be recovered. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things. And with a tax turn, I don't have a dead hard drive. I have something we definitely can recover the data off of. So could a, could a package get lost in the mail? Yeah. And remember, lost packages don't, don't just vanish. They are somewhere. We just don't know where. And somebody may open up that package and see what's in it and decide, hey, they could sell this for money. So yeah, there are a lot more compromise points. You know, there are a limited number of compromise points on the e-filed returns. There are a lot of compromise points on a paper filed return, right? Also, data entry errors are much more prompt paper returns. And, you know, we know that. Remember some stats you may have heard recently that had, I believe it was what, 22% of paper filed returns had at least, from their entries, had at least some piece of data fouled up on the data transcription. Um, yeah, that tends to lead to IRS correspondence, a lot of extra correspondence, lots of extra mess. And I think most of us have encountered in recent years, let, let's ignore co COVID made it really bad uh, as the paper processing got way behind. But even prior to COVID, um, 
you still had, without question, more problem with paper returns than you do with electronic if you were handling both. That's why a lot of EAs and CPAs will only do electronic filing. From a process standpoint, it's much easier if you have one process rather than two, and this seems the process to go. Okay. Now, they note, and this is very clear, and this is probably one of the best things that comes out of Jay's article, and get professionals to remember to do this. You need to receive proof of acceptance from return, whether it was e-filed by an individual yourself, so the individual goes and does it on TurboTax, or they use a tax professional. Every taxpayer should understand if you're using electronic filing, you need proof of acceptance. That means if you're doing TurboTax, you go out and you make sure you go check that. Again, a lot of them never do. If you're a pro, there's really no excuse for not checking it. You know, you should have a control system in place that checks to BC if there's a reject. You know, I know that my software, you know, we, we, we try the belts and suspenders. So I have it set up. So if there's a reject, I get an email that this return is rejected. You know, well, actually just tells me the client number that's rejected. So, but I know I got an issue. And so you look at the client number, we know who it is. Uh, but also we double check online, you know, with, with the service to make sure that that return actually clears and we print that stuff out. And that's how we clear the return out of the office, right? That should be going. And then that data is given to the client. The client has proof of filing. You know, every individual should get that. If you're a tax pro, you need to be providing that to everyone. And by the way, what these cases, because every one of these cases where the return never got filed, I guarantee you the taxpayer won a big civil claim against that tax professional, right? We know with the three years not filed, we knew the court even mentioned there's already been a settlement. And my guess is the settlement was going to be the CPA firm was going to have to pay or their liability care is going to have to pay whatever was turned out to be due, uh, but right, they were going to court hoping to get that reduced, and obviously it didn't get reduced. So the same basic problem here. You've got a huge liability problem. Make sure you do that. If you're on a professional, that's not protected. So if you rely on a professional to mail a document, and this, in the old days of paper filing, I remember, you know, extension day. Well, generally, all the extensions we had where the taxpayer didn't owe money or wasn't going to pay, the CPA firm generally handled those extensions. We didn't hand those out to clients and say, y'all got to go to the post office. That'd been a mess. But that was a case back in those days that there were cases that came down because the CPA firm or the EA firm blew that, didn't get that process handled right. You know, and if your CPA firm and some firms will handle mailing a document, well, that can be blown. And even experienced people can blow it. Uh, if you go to the history of the Seaview Trading case from last year, there was an interesting aside in Seaview Trading when they went to the in banc hearing. Um, it wasn't clear in the original decision, which it was at the original Ninth Circuit decision, which didn't overturn the in banc hearing, about why Seaview had stopped arguing that their return was timely, was actually was filed timely because they filed it with certified mail. What we found out in the Inbank opinion was they mentioned in passing that they had said that they had the certified mail receipt, but then the IRS came back and said, well, that envelope had this partnership in it. So my guess is that, well, <laughs> yeah, that, at that point, the taxpayer realized that, ooh, 
okay, we filed up. We don't put two returns in one envelope. And we don't, we have, or we have either the same number attached to that other partnership, right? Which could be electronic. They put a copies. But in any event, they quickly determined they really didn't have evidence of timely filing of the return in question. And that's how it got dropped. Again, experience. And th this was a big, big partnership. The people filing this obviously had filed a lot of them. They filed with more than one return because we had more than one partnership they'd filed. Um, yeah, just experienced people filed it up as well. That's not there. And paper filing only works if the taxpayer navigates the rules of 7502C, which is gets that piece of paper stamped with the date by the tax by, you know, by the IRS employee. And gang, that often doesn't happen, right? We don't see that done. You know, they don't do that. They're just going to drop it in the mailbox. They're going to just get a proof of filing document, which does us no good whatsoever. You know, they're going to do anything else because they claim they don't need so, or they're going to get, they're going to have the certified mail done because they don't want to go to the post office. They go down to a mailboxes or a, not used to be mailbox, et cetera. Now it's UPS store and have them do the certified mail, which no, that receipt from the UPS store proves nothing. You need the receipt that they'll get when they walk into the post office. And we had a case a few years ago, I think it was about two, I think it was a 2001 case, uh, where, yeah, the UPS guy didn't go down that day, right? They took all their mail the next day. So the certified mail was one day late. And yeah, it's lots of ways. We, we have many, many cases, you know, beyond the cases that Jay cites for electronic filing, I can cite as many or way more cases because Remember that this was going on for many years before electronic filing, where taxpayers, tax attorneys, DPAs, EAs have blown the prove the paper filing rule. So yeah, we can't really say that'll work. Um, they also said the taxpayer will probably want to confirm that his tax return got processed. Again, it doesn't matter. I can prove that I mailed it, which is helpful and useful. But what I really want to know is, is it getting processed? And that's going to be a slow, slow process to do confirmation of when it gets in the system with a paper return. You got to go back and do the paper filing. Um, IDME, as noted, does work under specific restrictions. It's not necessarily just for access to the IRS data. If your client wants access to their Social Security data, they need to jump through IDME. You know, there are various ways to do it. Amber in the article notes that she was able, you know, she used it for her TSA, right? You know, Go through the TSA so you can get yourself so you can get, you know, so you basically can board with, you know, with pre-check, um, you know, renewing, working with or renewing that was useful because she had IDME. So, yeah, you know, there's lots of reasons, A, why people probably have IDME. And secondly, it does add a level of security in the area of authentication, that it's a real person. It forces two-factor authentication. There's lots of things it does that are useful. Uh, and again, you know, as opposed to somebody just walking in the IRS and claiming that they're you, right? Or whatever else they're doing there on the phone. E-filing confirmations get back very quickly. So we have absolute proof of filing there. Now, I would say it's somewhat less helpful. I mean, I understand what Amber's saying. It's in the system that's been entered. But if you get the proper certified mail document, the problem is nobody understands what it is. Not nobody. Amber would understand it. So would Jay. But a lot of people don't. Um, if you get the proper document, then as soon as it's mailed, you've got this, you know, essentially prima facie proof of filing 
unless the IRS can show that something else was in the envelope. I'd never seen them do it till Seaview Trading. And they actually, and there it's more like, you know, assuming that uh, the Seaview Trading attorneys and the individuals there are honest people who do not want to commit perjury. And gang, hey, good news, they are. Yeah, they, they pretty much, as soon as the IRS came up with that other partnership, I was like, oh, blank. Uh, and they looked in their files. I, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that's probably what happened. It was like, okay, we can't keep asserting that because that would be perjury. And yeah, we, we certainly have a strong reason to believe now that in fact, that wasn't, right? That, that never actually became, you know, that, that was never what, uh, what was in the envelope. So it's the only case I know of where the Irish be able to prove that it w what wasn't in the envelope or indirectly. So my conclusions on e-filing, any method used to file a tax return will come with some advantages and risks. This is just the way things work. Was an example I remember years ago when I was on the Tax Technology Committee of the, AIS, of the AICPA, our chair at the time, Gene Prescott, and you know, this is back in the mid-90s. The internet thing was just starting. Amazon was just getting up there in the late 90s. And talking about all the people, you know, you know, clients or other people who said, oh, they, they would never, never, never put their credit card in the inter on the internet. Because that's too risky. And he was laughing. He's saying, you know, you say that, but you go to a restaurant and you hand your card to somebody you've never seen before who goes away from you and has it for about, you know, five minutes away from you. You can't see what they're doing. They could easily take everything off that card instantly. They got a card and they got a scanner. They can do it real quickly, you know, before they hand it back to you. And that seems like an incredibly stupid thing to do. But we don't care because we're used to that. And I think that's the problem. You've got you to explicitly understand what are the real world risks? What are the real risks? And what are the real advantages of each option? There is always going to be a preference for you. are always going to underestimate the risks of the things you know and overestimate the risks of the things that seem unusual or new. Right? That's just how it works. Right? It's amazing how many things are, are much less dangerous than commuting to work every day in the car. That can go insanely badly. And it does for a number of people every year. But we think about other things that we don't encounter as often and consider those way more dangerous, even though based on time and other factors, in reality, driving the car is very dangerous. But we're used to it. So we just go along with it. My personal experience, as I mentioned, years of paper filing is electronic filing has the overall base adva advantage. It has overall relative advantage, whether I'm looking at reducing correspondence and errors or I'm just looking at security. My comparison is, and you know, based upon my background, that in both cases, it's better on the electronic side than it is on the paper side, you know, than, than filing paper. That's one of our keys. Now, Understand though, and this is what's important, that does not mean in a specific case with specific facts that we won't encounter a situation where the electronic option went wrong in a way that would not have been possible to go wrong had it been paper filed. Like, you know, let, let's say that we talk about the uh, Walters Kluwers. You know, if that CPA firm had been doing returns by hand using pencil and paper, using pen and paper, Actually, back in the days when we did them by hand, it would be pencil and you'd copy it. 
So that, that's how you will get a locked-in copy. Uh, and I say that because I remember doing some returns by hand. Uh, it, it was kind of weird, but the very beginning of my career, we had some returns. We did some entities that the firm didn't license uh, from then CompuTax and do them by hand. So I remember how you do them by hand. I don't want to go back to that. In fact, I think it's not practical anymore because of things like the passive activity loss rules. A number of special rules have been written. Very complicated because everybody knows computers do these. That's how it goes. But even though there may be a few cases where I could say paper filing would have eliminated the problem that came up with the electronic filing, there are far more cases that I can recall from the paper filing days where had it been electronically filed, the problem wouldn't have existed. A lot of it has to do with the IRS misentering stuff on the return, which comes up with sending back a letter saying, please read the return. Right, please read the return, guys. You ignored the return. <laughs> And generally it's because, yeah, they got the numbers wrong. And, you know, we had a lot of that sort of stuff in the day. It just, it just was the way it worked. Okay. Let's go on to some cases now. Hubbard versus United States. PC memo 2024-16, this came on February 6th. This is a pharmacist who was convicted for various crimes related to distribution of controlled substances and listed chemicals. You know, he was dealing in narcotics, right? It was like he was, he was, oh, he was handling those out. Apparently, those sorts of things. So that's what's happening here. Guy ends up in prison because of this. Now, under the agreement, and I suspect what happens was that they showed he got funds and then he moved those funds into, right, his ill-gotten funds into various places, which included his T. Rowe Price IRA that he had, that he had moved funds into there. So the government, you know, as part of the criminal penalty, was able to take those assets, including the IRA. So his IRA is seized by the government, right? A 1099R was issued by T. Rose Price to him for $427,581, the amount the government seized. The problem is at the time he was in prison, right? And we'll talk about his wife here in a second. Uh, but in any event, he never filed a return for the year in question. IRS noticed that did a substitute for return. Eventually, everything was done, but we got an issue there. Now, he claimed this should not be taxable to him because he never got the money. And the court said, gang, no. That there's a whole history of cases here. That forfeiture made you whole with the government, right? So you actually did get what's going to be considered to be, you know, a constructive receipt of the funds. It was used to pay your debt. As such, you're going to trigger the income tax side of that. So he owes tax on the entire 427, right? He has to owe that. There's no way out of that, right? Instructive receipt triggers the full tax. Now, the opinion distinguishes very various cases that the tax, they cited a lot of cases where they're trying to say why it was different. They, every case, the court distinguished that it's not like this. The cases that are like this, are we can show you that giving up your IRA, having it seized, triggers tax to you, right? That, they said, bottom line, there, it's, not a, it's not an issue here. This is just how it works. Now, so okay, he owes that tax, but doesn't he have reasonable cause to escape the penalties for failure to pay and failure to file? Because, hey, he was incarcerated. He had no income. His assets had basically all been taken. And his now ex-wife 
had not forwarded him the 1099-R that was sent to his address at home, where he obviously wasn't. He was in prison. And now, the court held very briefly, non-receipt of a 1099 is not reasonable cause. And the court noted that you knew it had been forfeited. You knew it wasn't at T. Rowe Price any longer. You know, the theory of the court was you should have asked somebody, is that taxable? You didn't. You didn't file a return. Therefore, failure to file, failure to pay, all of that is still due on you. Next up, this is an article by Nathan J. Richmond from Tax Notes Day Federal on February the 9th. IRS confirms ERC voluntary disclosure isn't for willful conduct. In the IRS webcast this past week on the Employee Retention Credit Voluntary Disclosure Program, Eric W. Anderson from the IRS Small Business Self-Employed Division noted that the lack of criminal prosecution protection, if the taxpayer willfully, there is a lack of criminal prosecution protection, if you go in under the ERC Voluntary Disclosure Program and you willfully filed a fraudulent claim, that is, you will be prosecuted doesn't matter, you came forward voluntarily. This is the wrong program. Rather, he notes, that if you believe you are, if you believe there is a chance you could be charged, your facts are bad, and you might be charged with a crime, rather, you need to consider coming in through the Criminal Investigation Division's Voluntary Disclosure Program. That may be a much more appropriate way to come through. And we mentioned, I mentioned we talked about this program that, you know, you don't get protection from criminal prosecution. And what you're doing is you're giving them all kinds of data about yourself. You're attempting to throw the preparer under the bus, probably, when you put it in there, describing what they did. Don't be surprised if they come back and try to throw you under the bus. And you may each succeed in throwing the other under the bus and just make sure everybody gets under the bus, which unfortunately is probably the most likely outcome, right? We're all under the bus. Uh, together. So that's a problem. Now, the problem with the CID program, though, is you don't get these nice, generous terms. You get escape jail, but basically the this very generous program they have through March 22nd, where, yeah, you know, we'll talk about what that, you know, all the generous parts of it. It is a very generous program. I said that from the start. If it wasn't for that whole no criminal prosecution protection, it would be an absolute no-brainer for a lot of clients to go in and do it. You know, if they if they have the money to pay it, right, to go ahead and do it. But the problem is, you not you only get those generous terms come with the caveat that you better not have done anything criminal. If they can make a criminal case against you, yes, you 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 may you may be able to keep twenty percent of what you got, but you may be spending time in a slammer. What exactly was the nature of that program's benefits? Let's remember, under the, why people want to go here is you only have to repay 80% of the credit you received. So let's say I was talking to somebody this week who you know, had a client that got a $9 million credit that he's not so sure if they qualify for. Um, the client would get to keep $1.8 million of that. You know, if they just send it back in, they could keep $1.8 million and have no risk of a civil exam, right? They also don't have to pay any interest. And it's, and it's great because remember, they got $9 million check. They would get some interest on that, right? For being paid to them after it was originally put together, or after it would have been due. 
And then on the other side, they don't pay any interest when they put it back in. So that's a really nice deal that you're not going to get under the other program. You also get out of all penalties. Right? And you don't have to reduce the deduction for wages paid. Not even for the 20% you kept. Finally, even though you kept that 20%, this company, in theory, let's take that $9 million. Let, let's assume that there's no basis for it. So they return it. They keep $1.8 million. They got $1.8 million. And it's definitely an accession to wealth. It would seem to be Section 61 income. Clearly, it is Section 61 income. But under this program, the IRS will turn a blind eye to that. This is a very generous program. But if you were criminally, if you basically should have, no, you, you knew there was something wrong. You willfully filed it falsely under the free money theory. And the IRS decides to take you to criminal court you might be spending some time in Leavenworth. So that's the flip side. End up going. Because of this, a taxpayer should consult with a counsel before entering the voluntary disclosure program. If you are not an attorney, do not try to have a long, clear discussion with a client about exactly what they did to determine whether, which, which program they should go into. This is a discussion they should have with somebody with privilege in a criminal matter. That means attorney. We need a member of the bar. The CPA or EA that is not a member of the bar should not be doing this, right? They should have that discussion. And by the way, your client, because the other problem is your client knows this too, that you have no privilege. They probably will try to keep some stuff from you if they know that they think might be bad. You need to go somewhere and have a full confession in front of somebody who is, you know, who has that protection. So seriously, they need to go talk to counsel. The IRS also indicated that they are aware of the end of the program is in the middle of tax season. That's like a bad time. It's March 22nd. But they have no consideration currently being given to extending the program. They're saying here very clearly March 22nd is the date. I strongly suspect that is the date. I don't see them kicking it back behind April 15th. Maybe, you know, I can see the AICPA and NAEA potentially asking it to be kicked back. I don't think they're going to do it, though. I think they will just have a less generous program after that date where, I mean, that's a very nice deal. Expect the deal to get less, much less nice the next time, but still better than going through the whole exam, so, you know, the whole exam side. And then just keep getting less and less generous the further out you go. That's how these programs tend to work. Next up, we got a warning about a scam emails. This is an IRS news release, IR 2024-36. IRS warns tax professionals to be aware of an EFIN scam email. Special webinar is offered next week. Well, we'll talk about exactly when because you may be hearing this after these things are available. So we'll do that. A lot of people got these emails this week. The email impersonates various professional tax software companies. So it, it will claim to come from Walters Kluwers, uh, Thomson Reuters, Intuit, Drake, whoever. It will look like an email from them. Right? They'll have the logos. They'll have all the right graphics. They'll have all the right stuff at the bottom. It'll look just like an email coming from your tax software vendor. 
right? It will say, hey, you know, hey, you know, customer, we need to have EFIN documentation for verifying that you're eligible for the program. And we need you to send us information about your EFIN, right? Detailed EFIN information from the IRS. And why is this so sneaky is because most people remember initially when signing up with your tax software vendor at the first point, and, you know, if they didn't have anything from the past from you, they would at, they, you know, ask for this document. Now, suddenly they say we need to reauthorize this. So that seems plausible, right, that they could. Now, obviously, they're going to attempt to steal client data and your identity using what they get from you in this process of verification. And then they're going to use that to file fraudulent refunds. They will use your account, your EFIN, to generate fake returns. And if they can get access to it by using the data that you have on your servers for your clients. So this would be bad. Yeah, this would be bad if you fall for it. Very bad. Let's take a look at the example email the IRS gave us. Now, example email says, you know, dear recipient, right, help us protect you. You know, it starts out like a security thing. And that, that's what I want to convince you of. Because many electronic filing identification numbers are stolen each year. And yeah, yours is about to be one if you go along with this, but we won't say that. And used to file fraudulent returns, the IRS has asked software vendors such as, you know, TurboTax, you know, LACERT, UltraTax, you know, basically uh, Access, ProSystem FX, to verify who the EFIN owner is by getting a copy of the IRS-issued EFIN documents. Our records show we do not have a document for one or more of the EFINs you transmit with. You might grumble and think, oh, that we gave it to you. Dang, they lost it. Whatever. But, you know, you'll go down that. What this means for you, until your EFIN is verified, you will be unable to transmit returns. Your business has just stopped, according to this. Please provide a copy of your EFIN account summary from the IRS services with a status of completed to our software company, right, for verification. Send your EFIN summary statement and please fax it to this number. I uh, hint, that number is not one that your tax software companies use. And since you probably don't fax much to them, uh, you probably don't know whether that's a valid number for them or not. That says, please note your prepared identification number application cannot be used as documentation for your EFIN. And this is the actual email, one of the actual emails the IRS got. If you don't have the above documentation, you get a copy. I love it. They're going to help you walk your way through to get the stuff and then that they want to steal from you. Uh, EFA services by following the following steps. Sign in your IRC services account. Choose your organization from the list provided. Click submit. Click the application link to access your existing application. Click the e-file application link. Click the existing application link that applies to your organization. Click the application summary for the area of the application you wish to enter. Click the print summary at the bottom of the email. From the summary presented on the screen. If you have any questions, call our compliance office at another phone number, which of course, not really with your software company either. Uh, for assistance, they'll, they'll definitely help you, which you are going to get the stuff to steal from you. Thank you for your business. We look forward to serving you this coming season, you know, and your software company. Yeah, fake email. Totally faked. But meant to scare you into quick action. That's what these things usually do. To protect against such scams, you should always independently contact your software company support line if any email is received suggesting you're supposed to send them anything sensitive, anything you would send them that you would not post on your door, right? 
If you're being asked to send stuff, you would not post that document on your door for everyone to see. You wouldn't put it on a billboard across the street from your firm. Don't follow up. Make sure that, that you do that and call the software company support if any such email is received. Make sure you do that. Do not use the phone numbers in the email, right? Those will almost certainly not go to them, at least for anything that could conceivably know if there was this issue on your account. Do not ever, 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 and this is one you've just got to train yourself for. I know it's super convenient, but don't click links in an email. That is so easy to fake, it's not funny, right? Like we said, this whole email is faked. You know, they'll have a button there. Click here to, you know, submit the information or click here to log in. We showed you that last week with the Microsoft 365. You know, that click here. Never, ever, ever go into your software, go directly into your normal logins. Again, if there is something this big and important out there, likelihood is it will be right emblazoned on the page that you need to do this to fix this. Right, do that. Now the IRS will conduct webinars. So if you're hearing this before February 16th, they're gonna have webinars one each day, basically on Monday through Friday, the week of the 12th to 16th. They will have a webinar each day. They're at slightly different times, but generally 11 or 11, I think it's 11 a.m. or noon Eastern time. They vary a bit. Uh, so if you want to have more information about this, you can go listen to those webinars. If you you know, haven't already listened to that sort of thing. If you receive the scam emails, the IRS wants you to contact TIGTIP, you know, the tax, the Treasury Inspector General's Office for Tax Administration. Uh, and they also want you to forward a copy of the full email. And they really need the whole source version of the email. So it's, it's figure out how to get that from your software because the headers will be very, very useful to those that are trying to trace and see if they can figure out where this thing, try to find these people that, that header is going to be really helpful. So make, make sure you send the whole email to them, not, not just the text of the email. The text they've already seen. That's not going to help them much. Tax professional suspects data theft has occurred. The IRS suggests consulting your local IRS stakeholder liaison as soon as possible. I would say, though, right, if you want to get to the IRS, you need to get a hold of them relatively quickly. But I, they wouldn't be the first person I'd call. I would suggest contacting your own attorney and your insurance carrier. And I would probably go in that order. Uh, again, the insurance company is insurance company. And you probably want to make sure your own attorney is in here and is giving you advice. Because the exposure here is for a lot of things, including reporting to the state, uh, you know, because you probably have to report to attorney generals and probably multiple for every person in every state that could be impacted. You probably also have to report, um, you know, information to other places. You probably have to contact all potential parties. There's all kinds of things you need to do. So you want to make sure and get that in there. The IRS will basically, by contacting them, they will likely be able to freeze the account and stop additional ones from being filed. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the big thing. And probably flag your clients for all being, you know, don't, don't process returns from them until they get their IP pins and they submit those. Okay, next up, coming up here, and we're getting towards the end. We're gonna talk about a case of American Guardian Holdings, Inc. versus United States. U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois 
case number 1-23-CV-01482. This opinion came down on February the 7th. In 2019, the taxpayers, this corporation's accountant, discovered an error in 2015 return and said, oh, looks like you overpaid your tax back in 2015 by $1,179,563. Only a slight overpayment. And by the way, that was the vast majority of the tax on the return. We'll get to a little bit more shortly, about a hundred and, hundred and some thousand was left over. Okay, that accountant prepared an amended return, but it appears that return was never actually sent to the IRS. I, you're reading between the lines, it appears that the company may have lost confidence in that accountant. Because later in 2019, they hired a brand new accountant in the fall of 2019, and that accountant prepared a new amended return. He discovered additional issues. And he now prepared a return that showed no tax due at all for 2015. Now, the only problem was, while he attached the first amended return to the second, he didn't really explain things well, and he may not have known that the first return was never actually sent to the IRS, which is what appears happened. So what he used for the column in this case, you know, the original reported column on the second amended return used the first amended returns adjustments. But remember, that return never sent the IRS. So that caused problems. The IRS says, hey, sorry, the return can't be processed because the original return, you know, as originally reported, that column doesn't agree with what's in our system right now. And so because of that, you know, we need you to correct this return and resubmit it, you know, and submit it to us. So, you know, correct it, get it in right, and we'll go. Now, this return by the IRS, and this is all taking place as the statute is expiring. The IRS gave no deadline for this, but one key thing to note, the second amended return clearly went in before the deadline, right? So it got done in 2019 before the deadline. Again, since this guy was hired in the fall and it's a C corporation, obviously, yeah, the deadline was coming close. So he was, this new account was in a bit of a rush because, you know, the statute was about to go away from under him. So in any event, they, they did this return. You know, he probably threw it together as best he could and then filed it. Now, though, they mixed those two up. So the guy says, we can't process it. So now, for whatever reason, and they didn't tell him how quickly he had to get back to him. Now the accountant prepared and submitted another amended return in 20, February 2020 in response to this. So now we've gone from fall of 19 into, you know, basically late, later part of winter, the latter part, I guess middle of winter, really, because winter, yeah, I guess, well, still latter, right? We'll see somewhere there, midwinter, let's say, February 2020. He goes ahead and he prepares another amended return and submits that in response reason why this takes to 2024 is because you know what happened right after he did this, but that's all another long discussion. This time he explained, he, he again revised the claim. Now he stated the return was meant, intended to show, right, to allow, to allow the taxpayer to file a form 1120 PC, the property and casualty corporate form, instead of the form 1120 because they determined, you know, they, they had been granted the right to file that way 
And so he determined that that was in fact another reason for claim for refund. And by doing that, now we have a tax. Remember, the first return showed we sold about 100 grand. That return shows we owe nothing and basically was a break-even return. Now we're going to file a return that shows a loss of more than $127 million under this new theory. Okay. Now, now the problem comes. Yara says, wait, wait, wait. That third amended return was too late. It came in well after, and there's no question, the third amendment return was filed well after the statute would have expired for amending the 2015 return, right? So he said, and one of the positions I took, that had a few ways of trying to claim this, but the one the court latched on to was that even if the first two claims, you know, and really the first claim never got filed, so we can ignore that one. If the second claim counted as an informal claim for refund, then the third one was not a simple update to that claim, perfecting that claim. It was rather a totally different claim, wildly different claim than what the IRS had been appraised of in the informal claim. Now, if you're not aware how informal claims for refunds work, they're a claim for refund that is not perfected, meaning it has some flaw in it. In this case, obviously, the question about you know, what, what was as originally reported was wrong there, the service couldn't follow it, so it had imperfection. It wasn't done the way the IRS suggested it needed to be done. But if, a, if that claim, imperfect as it is, apprises the IRS of the basic substance, you know, the nature of the claim, what the taxpayer is claiming and why they claim they have a refund coming, then even though the claim may not be perfected until after the, you know, what would have been the due date, we're going to go back and treat the informal claim as essentially being the one, you know, being the one that was filed and keeping the statute open. Now, the problem in this case is obviously they're arguing, wait, IRS says this is a brand new claim. The court agreed with the IRS on this one. They said, this is so different from what was suggested on the second claim. The first and second claims weren't that different in what they were suggesting happened. He said, but this is like out of left field and radically different. And you didn't apprise the IRS that you were going to claim a refund based on this until after the statute had gone away. Your informal claim did not apprise the IRS of the nature of the claim. Right? Rather, you had a brand new theory that you brought in. And, right, you know, you can't do that. You know, your, your, your informal claim did not hold the statute open for this position. Now, as the court pointed out, the IRS initially got it wrong and thought that there was a different refund being asked for here because they were trying to read the initial claim, et cetera. You know, the court said, no, no, no. Obviously, at the end, the IRS conceded they were just asking for all the money back they paid in 15. They said, so that wasn't different. But, and this bothered me a little bit that the court said, but this $127 million loss, well, that could affect NOLs going forward. I'm a little concerned about that comment by the court because it suggests that, you know, they, they, they couldn't create an NOL from those years and carry it forward, you know, if they did that late. Remember, the only thing the statute stops is filing a claim for refund from that year, right? Getting money back from that year. But none of this, none of the, none of the, none of the statutes involved here should stop the taxpayer from theoretically 
if we really could claim, and we got to go back as to whether the 1120 PC should have been filed and all those other things, but, but let's assume that that's not a problem. You know, we can go back and, and we could recompute the proper taxable income from that year and then carry that loss forward. That shouldn't be a problem. But otherwise, I think the court's on pretty solid ground by saying this is a radically different claim. And even though it comes down to asking for the same check from the IRS, the nature of the claim is radically different. This is a brand new claim. I suspect the new accountant was time rushed. I suspect he decided as long as he got a claim, as long as he got an informal claim in, that you know he, he could then go back and restudy everything and come up with these other theories. Uh, no, court said no. Nope, that, that's not going to work. An entirely different basis for the refund makes this an entirely new claim because an informal claim has to apprise the IRS of the nature of the basis of the claim. And the court does cite some cases where no basis was given for the claim. And the court says, in that case, those were ruled invalid. You know, in this case, you gave a basis. You're no longer claiming is what you're, is what you're going under. So, you know, why would giving a totally wrong basis for the claim somehow be better than giving none? Right, you know, just make something up. No, that's not going to work. And that's not what was happening here. But the problem is, as I said, I think it was a timing issue. I think it was that the new CPA came in so late and was trying to take steps to get control of this thing, but didn't really have time to go through it in detail. And unfortunately, when he did get what may very well be a totally correct claim, that didn't agree with the reason why he told the court initially, why he told the IRS initially what the claim was going to be for. So they lost the position. So this has been the Current Full Tax Developments for the week of February the 12th, 2024. Current Full Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state side CPAs. Uh, I'm Ed Zollers. Again, coming to you here from Phoenix. We're going to talk a little, you know, we're going to, I should say, my email address, edzollers at currentfulltaxfilmless.com. You also can find me on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Washington, right, etc. And we can go on Idaho's website or Idaho's discussion groups. I respond some there. Uh, otherwise, you know, hopefully we'll see you back here next week. We'll see what comes up. A lot of people have a new tax bill next week, so we'll talk about what else comes up. We'll see you back here next week on current federal tax developments.